Get to the church, blind! Get to the church, blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. Coming to you for our all-serious podcast, Hardcore Church Planning. That's kind of a boring one, huh? Well, I don't get to tell as many jokes, so, you know, that's kind of what I'm in for. I think this is actually probably our good podcast, really. And uh, it is. We it don't is. screw around so much. Because we it's have just, guests on here. They get just, mad at us. It's just not as fun for me. But yeah, it is the one that people really enjoy. Because probably we don't joke around as much. So I should probably stop right now and uh, let you introduce our guest. Hey, well, our, our guest needs no introduction. We're on here with Michael Frost, multiple book writing author. Um, probably toughest guy in church plan as far as we're concerned. We definitely wouldn't pick a fight with him. And uh, anyways, he's got a new book out. It's called Surprise the World. And uh, Frosty, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. And this is actually, this is the serious podcast. Let me just get that straight. <laughs> <laughs> this is as serious as we can be because we don't, we don't spend uh, 20 minutes in smack talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I'll try and keep it serious in that case. Yeah, by all means. But you know, as I'm hearing, even though, even though you're an Aussie, I still, I still living in Britain, I still actually hear, uh, uh, I still actually hear Monty Python. I, I can't help it. You know, it was the Australian philosopher sketch. It was the Australian table wine sketch. They just keep coming back to me. I can't help it. Well, okay. Well, we're keeping it serious in that case and discussing highbrow culture like Monty uh, Python. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Mike. To to begin to kick it off today. Um. So you you've got this book. It surprised the world. You know, actually, yeah. Peyton. Before we get into the book, let's ask our uh, our start off question that we always ask our guests. Okay. Sure. Which um, uh, Mike, since a lot of people uh will be new, maybe perhaps uh to you though that almost seems impossible. One of the things we always like to start off with with our guests is to ask you uh, to tell us your story of how you came to faith, um, and then we'll get into some of the subjects that we talk about or that you talk about in your book here. Uh, okay. Well, it's not a funny story, so that's a good thing that we're, we're doing the serious podcast because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, well, I was raised a I was raised a Catholic kid here in uh, Sydney in Australia. Uh, about a third of our country is Catholic, uh, mainly thanks to Irish immigration. And we're also a penal colony, so basically Irish convict immigration. Um, and yeah, I, I grew up kind of haunted by Jesus in my family. Mm -hmm. Like there were, you know, first Holy Communion Bibles and pictures of Jesus around. And uh, uh, I, I, I was in awe of him, I think is what I would say. I, I knew there was something peculiar and, and wonderful about him, but... Uh, as a kid, I really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to know exactly who he was or what the whole story was about. You know, I, I knew he, he looked after baby lambs and I knew that he, uh, 
he uh, he loved people and he wore a, a white nightgown and you know he had uh, lovely you know tussled bouncy curly hair and don't forget the blue uh, sash the blue sash can't forget that blue sash and the blue sash that's right <laughs> well that was that was it that was the kind of the story and as much as he was sort of like a, a, a beautiful blonde uh, blue sashed Jesus I still knew there was something creepy and and holy about it. And that kind of haunted me through most of my childhood and adolescence. But uh, in terms of coming to meet him, it wasn't until I was at uh, Sydney University. And it was a campus ministry, basically, that introduced me to the person of Jesus and told me that actually this guy who I, well, not even this guy, this thing that I, I thought was you know, awesome and frightening and beautiful and lovely, but about whom I really didn't know very much, could actually be my friend, was my savior. I could have a relationship with him. Uh, and ultimately, that's what really kind of began my my journey into faith. It took a few years um, uh, before I, I ended up being uh, baptized and joining a Baptist church of all things. And my, my mother wept. I remember my mother saying, like, you can't join the Baptists. They don't drink, they don't smoke, and their women don't wear makeup. <laughs> I hear an Adam Ant song coming on. <laughs> like, what do you do? It's like, Mom, you're worried about me because I could date a girl who doesn't wear makeup? <laughs> <laughs> then she became concerned for your soul. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, tell us uh, a little bit about what brought about this book, Surprise the World, and uh, what caused you to write this. Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, it, it was uh, – we, we, you and I were gagging before we, we came on air here because uh, I said it was a surprise that I wrote the book. And it wasn't meant to be a pun because the book's called Surprise the World. But basically, uh, our church, uh, when we first planted it, started to, to to live out a series of five habits or rhythms. And I never anticipated that I'd write them up or that it would be a thing that we'd want to kind of foist onto the world or anything like that. It was just uh, five uh, weekly habits that we felt were important for us to engage missionally in our neighborhood. But I actually blame Alan Hirsch, to be honest, for this, because Alan would then in seminars and conferences all around the world when people would say, well, you know, what does it look like in real terms to be missional? One of the examples you'd often use would be our five habits. And in the end, I've now discussed, I mean, to be honest, I I've done it too in seminars and workshops. So um, now I all over the world, I meet people who say, oh, well, we use the five habits uh, that, that you guys came up with. And then a group called Exponential, a conference that has its website and uh, podcasts and the like, said, uh, uh, "Would you write it up as an ebook?" And we put it up online for for free. And then NavPress said, "Hey, that could be like a paper and ink thing or or a, 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 an ebook. Let's uh, let's publish it for real." And so mm. it's kind of wasn't ever a like intention. I want to write this thing. It's just basically been a little bit like a snowball it's just grown and grown and grown and now out comes the book so um it I, i'm kind of the reluctant author of this book you might say i dig it those I, could be the best kind man so it, it's okay so it surprised the world and even the cover it's got um a circle with five lines drawn and four uh five circles on there and it's the five habits of highly missional people now when when you talk missional mike you're uh, you're one of what people would consider the preeminent leaders 
of the missional movement, particularly one of the thought leaders. You're still a practitioner, but uh, but you you're a thought leader. So tell us in in that you have the Bell's model. What is that? Right. Well, these are the, the five habits. So, in fact, the original ebook was simply called The Five Habits of Highly Missional People. And uh, NavPress have used that as the subtitle and called the book Surprise the World. And I, uh, we can talk a bit later why they called it that because it's actually quite a good title the more I think about it. But mm. the five habits are basically these five things that uh, in our community, uh, you know, we, we are committed to blessing three people every week. At least one of whom should be a member of our own church, so we bless each other. At least one of whom should be uh, a non-Christian member of our neighborhood or community. Uh, and then the third one can be from either category. So you bless three people each week. And for us, blessing means kind of acts of kindness, uh, words of affirmation, gifts, those kinds of things. Uh, second habit is you eat with three people every week and the same thing either you know one will be a member of our community the other part of our neighborhood third from either category uh, you, you spend at least one significant time listening to the holy spirit fourth one is that you will learn christ and then the fifth one is that you are a sent person so you will journal all the ways you've been sent into your world to mirror the work of God. So put simply, it's B-E-L-L-S, bless, eat, mm. listen, learn, sent. Uh, and they are rhythms or habits that people can embrace that do three things. They bind us to each other because we're blessing and eating with each other. Uh, they propel us outwards because we're blessing and eating and being sent into the world of which we're part. But they also bind us more deeply to the triune God because we are spending time listening to or hearing the promptings of the Spirit and then learning Christ uh, through the Scriptures. And so it does that. Uh, Mike Breen talks about this uh, in, up, and out kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. and they do, in fact, uh, help to rhythm you around those three things. Yeah, I was just going to ask uh, real quickly, if I can, you know, one of the things that, that you talk about in your book is that we often exhibit our faith in action, but there's a strong case that our actions can shape our faith. Can you kind of explain that and maybe break it down for us? Yeah, that's at the very heart of it. So thanks for raising that, because uh, I think it's been fairly uh, much assumed, particularly by the evangelical world, that if we get our thinking right, so if we teach you and disciple you in, in right doctrine, in an orthodox Christian view, that uh, your thinking, your belief system will then affect the way you behave and you will act in alignment with that. And uh uh, and that's true. I'm not discounting that. But I also recognize that a great many people have the opposite experience. And that is to say that they learn a lifestyle. They learn a series of habits or rhythms in their life. And that behavior actually shapes their thinking or their belief system. Now, I'm not saying you have to choose between one or the other. For some of you, it has been. I've just come into a new way of thinking and it's completely changed the way I live. But we've often discounted the fact that a great many people really, uh, basically their belief system uh, emerges out of the habits or rhythms of life that they have. And, and I would actually say to any of, of our listeners that if you were raised in, in, in church, if you have a, you know, from a Christian family and uh, uh, you were probably uh, uh, learned your faith through 
the embracing of a, a set of habits and, and lifestyles. So, you, you know, it was probably the case that for you, if you were raised in church, you learned how to live like a Christian before the experience of right thinking or belief or a relationship with Jesus uh, actually occurred. And so mm. what, what, we've did, what we came to was this idea that for a great number of people, certainly in our community, we're not discounting the importance of Bible teaching and discipling and, and uh, helping people to, to embrace right thinking, orthodoxy, that no, no question about that. Mm. But we a great many people just say, okay, I, I'm getting my thinking right, but what do I do? What do I do with this? Yeah. And for a lot of conventional churches, what they what they say you do is, well, you attend church on Sundays, uh, you, um, you, you're part of a small group ministry, you read your Bible every day. You know, there, there are habits that we expect that believers should embrace, but very rarely are they actually missional ones. And so the five habits are designed to say to people, here, live like this and it will actually create the scaffolding in your life mm. that helps bind you more deeply to God. It, it, it does disciple you, but it also propels you outwards into the lives of others. Mm. That sounds great, and I love the fact that it, it's just put in a very simple way. I would, I would imagine that this is part of the appeal of this book right now with people. You know, it's selling very well, and I think, you know, like you said, and, and I, I think that's powerful, Mike, that – You've got oh hey should I say Michael or did, like is that bad because I had Phil Philip Yancey on here once he got mad I called him Phil. <laughs> oh, no 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 Mike is fine. Okay all right all right because otherwise I'll just default to Frosty that's so much easier. <laughs> but uh, but you know the uh, the the idea that you raise that look we all have habits we've all been raised with habits but this is an intentional development and we're coming up to the new year anyways. And uh, th this can almost be like something that you take and say, I'm going to make these five habits, like habits in my life. These are, these are kingdom habits I'm going to develop. So as, as you're, one of the things you say is that missional effectiveness grows exponentially the longer we embrace these habits mm -hmm. and the deeper we go with them. How is this so? Okay, well, once you start to develop a habit of, uh, of blessing three people every week, it fosters uh, a, 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 an orientation toward generosity. I mean, in living them out, what we expect is that everyone in our community on Monday morning uh, gets up and spends some time in prayer and just asks God, reveal to me, Lord, which three people should I bless this week? I mean, some of them might be obvious. Like I know, you know, Steve is really sick at the moment and could do with some help mm. or some love. So sometimes it's like, oh, that's obvious. I, I should respond to that. But in some cases, um, in many cases, the Holy Spirit really prompts us. Like we didn't know that actually Steve was really struggling right now, but the Spirit put his his name in our heart. And so, you know, a, a blessing someone could just be as simple as sending them an email to affirm them. It could be buying them a gift. It could be doing them some kind of favor, some act of kindness, whatever it might be. It could be the very thing that adds strength to their arm at the time that they needed it. My point here is this. If you start to develop a rhythm of blessing three people every week, it not only mm. – uh, Builds relationship between you and the people who are blessing you. You are blessing, and indeed who are blessing you. But it also fosters within you a kind of a an everyday orientation around generosity. Mm. 
And likewise with the second habit, which is eating with people. If you eat with three people every week, obviously it's going to orient you more significantly over time toward hospitality. You, you are just become, going to become the kind of person that knows how to use the table for the purposes of, of mission and relationship. And in fact, I often get pushed back from people, and particularly Americans, if I can say so, who say, whoa, three people every week, That's that, I'm already a busy guy, that's a lot to expect. But I always respond to that by saying, well, you already eat 21 times a week. Like, I mean, <laughs> some, 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 of more, some of us more. Just, right. just going to throw that and out so, there. It's like I'm not asking you to add another thing onto your, into your schedule. I'm just saying in three of those 21 meals, when you're sitting at a table, just bring someone else to the table. And look, if it's got to be coffee and a donut or it's got to be you know beer and chips or whatever, like whatever, just sit across a table with someone. Something magical happens when people do that. We talk. We open our lives to each other. And who knows where that goes in the long run. Now, if you start to foster these kinds of habits, just those two, you are going to become an increasingly uh, generous and hospitable person. But with the other ones, if you're listening to the Spirit every week, you're going to become more Spirit-led. If you're, if you're learning Christ, as, as I recommend in the, in the fourth habit, you're going to become more and more Christ-like. And if you're journaling all the ways you've been sent into the world to mirror the work of God, you're to become a missionary, which is just what the word sent one means. Now, if I'd put up a sign in the foyer of our church that said, we are a generous, hospitable, spirit-led, Christ-like community of missionaries. Everyone would have saluted that flag for sure, and no one would have known what to do tomorrow. So we don't even talk about those values as values. We don't say, hey, everyone, don't forget, we're meant to be hospitable. We just simply say this, hey, folks, don't forget, this is core to what it means to be a member here. We will eat with three people every week. We will bless three people every week and so on and so forth so that the habits foster the very values that we want to have as part of our community. Mm. You know, awesome. um, awesome. one of the, the things that you mentioned just briefly, and you've also mentioned it in the book, and I kind of would like you to expand on it is the idea between uh, the difference between reading the Bible and learning Christ. Right. Well, the, the expression to learn Christ is a really old-fashioned one. Uh, uh, way back in the like third, fourth, fifth centuries, uh, when they were really kind of engaging with the, the, uh, the whole polytheism or the many gods of the Greco-Roman world, when pagan people weren't either atheists or agnostics or lapsed Christians, as we're often dealing with, when they were like people who were frightened of the many gods in the world, the approach to evangelism was twofold. Firstly, it was refuting polytheism. So basically, uh, uh, revealing to people that these many gods don't exist and they have no power. And then the second prong was what they termed to learn Christ. And so basically, it's to unlearn polytheism and in its place to learn Christ. And to learn Christ meant more than just learning facts about him or reading the Gospels, you know, over and over. To learn him meant to take him on to to allow him to shape you, to enter fully into relationship with him, to be in Christ, perhaps in the way that we often use that expression. And so what we say, the, the fourth, uh, sorry, the fifth habit is to learn Christ, and that is to say, by all means, read the whole of the Bible and use 
Bible reading notes or whatever, whatever system you're currently using. We're not saying only read the four Gospels, but we are saying make that a weekly feature of your life to continue to read and reread those four Gospels. And in that book, we also have a whole lot of resources for extra biblical material on books that are about Christ, about the Gospels, mm. films about Jesus. We're just basically saying marinate yourself in the stories of Jesus so that they become second nature to them. You know them. And at the drop of a hat, you can talk about your friend King Jesus rather than the gospel simply being, you know, four spiritual laws or the bridge to life. The gospel is Jesus, and it shocks me often how little many evangelicals, Pentecostals, charismatics actually know about the story of Jesus. They know his greatest hits, you know, they know Christmas and Easter, a few miracles and a few parables. That's basically it. Well, if we're really learning Christ, we would be absolutely obsessed by him and know him uh, forwards and backwards. That's amazing, man. And and here's the thing that uh, as as we're looking about, and, and I find that very, very powerful that uh, you're talking about actually learning him as a person. And it, it's amazing that that someone has to come in and remind the church, you know, hey, <laughs> remember him, you know, uh, and yet the Bible does that and it it's the church needs it desperately. So thank you for for bringing that up and thank you for writing about that because, you know, you could you could easily say, oh, people don't need this, but it's very prophetic right now in 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 today's church culture. You talk, Mike, about the triad of accountability or DNA. What is this? And why is it essential to living out the Bell's model? Right. Well, in our community, you know, you commit to these uh, these five habits. You start to live them out, but we wanted to hold each other accountable to it. So we meet in groups of um, of three or four. In fact, this morning I met for breakfast with uh, three other guys who are part of my church. Um we meet together and basically we hold each other accountable. So these groups are called DNAs, Discipleship, Nurture, and Accountability. So the accountability one is obvious. It's like those three guys will ask me, who did you bless this week? Who did you eat with this week? What did you learn about Christ this week? What did you, how did, what did you hear from the Holy Spirit this week? Uh, in what ways have you been sent this week? So there's that kind of checking up, as it were, accountability piece. But there's also the the N in the DNA, the nurture piece. And that is, I might say, well, like the kids are sick and uh, work is crazy and, you know, frankly, I haven't eaten with anyone this week. And it's not like to beat me up about it. It's like nurture me, care for me, carry mm -hmm. me through this. Like uh, it could be like, man, I'm, I'm really doing it tough these days, just really got a lot of doubts or questions about God or about Christ. And, uh, in nurturing me, those guys are meant to kind of support me and carry me and uh, and care for me in those difficult times. So it's not accountability just like some legalism where I'm going to get condemned if I don't do it. It's about nurture. And then the D for discipleship is like literally, it's like it's in that setting I'm going to say, okay, I ate with the with the Smiths and they opened up to me about how their marriage is uh, in big trouble or they raised questions about whatever or they told me that they're interested in going to the Baha'i temple or whatever it might be. And I say to my, my DNA buddies, 
man, they, they told me all of that. And I was, I just was struck dumb. I didn't know what to say. I just like nodded and smiled and changed the subject. And we talked about the football or something. And it's in that D piece, the discipleship piece. These other guys are meant to say, right, whoa, stop. That is not good enough. Like you ate with someone that they opened their life to you in some way. How might you have dealt with that better? What might you have said about that? What book do you need to go read? What resource do you need to access to make you better at helping couples who open up about their marriage or who raise questions of an apologetic nature? So the D is meant to be about equipping me and teaching me to be better at this. The N is about nurturing me when I'm struggling and the A is about holding me accountable and mm. I just don't see how they would become lifestyle habits unless I had those elements built into it. Hmm. Well, you know, Michael, we appreciate the time that you've taken with us today. And, and one of the things that our listeners always wait for in our interviews is our final question. And, uh, Peyton and I were actually talking about this before. And, and the problem is, is we pretty much use you and almost every time we ask this question. So, I, I'll explain here in a second. So I'm going to ask o you only, only for the really big, tough guys. Yeah. And then Mike comes in. I, I I'm going to ask two questions, Peyton. I'm not, I'm not going to ask the one that we, you and I discussed before. <laughs> okay. Now I'm intrigued guys. Totally. <laughs> it gets better. It gets better. So here's the question. If you were to get into a physical fist fight with Hugh Halter, who would win? You know, Halter is into that whole CrossFit thing right now. Oh, like no. oh man, like he is like throwing tires around, and you know he <laughs> he lifts his wife over his head and spins her around five times, you know, every day or something. It's like Halter would would whip my ass. I'm telling you. <laughs> I think I think Hugh said that he was afraid you would pull a knife, and that would be the end of him. <laughs> Uh, that's that's the only hope I would have if I pulled it off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He said you might fight dirty, and you know what? The hat you wear sometimes, Frosty. We might just believe it. We called you Frosty. That's like your that's like your street name. <laughs> yeah. No, no, Halter though. Like he's hardcore. That guy. I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to go up against that guy. <laughs> yeah, you can just picture someone walking into a biker bar and like poking him. He just turns around slow with that look, you know. But uh, the question we were going to ask was uh, if you were to get into a physical fist fight with Michael Frost, who would win? Because we couldn't figure anyone that, you know, probably couldn't take you. Are you serious? Do you honestly ask people this question? Every, Every interview. interview. <laughs> and it literally and doesn't matter who it is. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Yancey, if you got in a physical <laughs> fist fight, who would win? It's just sometimes a little more challenging figuring out who we're going to pit people against. I can't remember who we asked Francis Chan. Do you remember? Well, Francis Chan wasn't on this one. Oh, he wasn't? He was okay. on the other one. But um, who did we ask Derwin Gray? Do you remember? Oh, who shoot, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember either. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's another one. He's another ace up the sleeve that you're like, who's going to take him? <laughs> <laughs> So anyways, uh, well, that, that's pretty much it. Was there another question, Pete? No, no, that's, that's it. I just want to remind everyone, though, that they can get a copy of Surprise the World everywhere that books are sold. And, of course, Amazon.com. I just uh, was checking it out 
um, actually while we were on this interview, just so I could get the, uh, the up-to-date price. But, uh, I mean, that thing tops out at four ninety nine. So if you can't afford five bucks for a quality book like this, I don't know. I'd rethink what you're doing. Absolutely. And, uh, Michael, thank you for coming onto the show. It has been awesome to have you as our guest. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for all you do to push the conversation forward. And, uh, thanks for being here to equip our church planners. Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been fun. All right. Well, Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planting. Hardcore Church Planting has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.